All right, so our chapter today is entirely devoted to the stunning story of how Jesus healed a man who had been blind since birth. The Lord healed many blind people during his ministry. You gotta understand that. Multiple people. The Lord healed blind people a lot. But this is the only record in John 9. This is the only record of someone with congenital blindness, being blind from birth, and getting the the gift of sight. By the time we finish the story, Jesus is not only gonna illuminate this guy's physical eyes, but he's also gonna illuminate his heart. And how many guys know that the greatest miracle of all is when the Lord saves us. We become um, um, born again by the Spirit of God. We become new on the inside. Physical healings are great, but spiritual healings are even better. And so this man is going to receive both physical and spiritual sight, and it's more evidence that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. All right, so what's the setting of our story? The setting of our story is the city of Jerusalem. When did our story take place? Our story took place sometime between the Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Booths, and the Feast of Dedication, also known as Hanukkah. All right, and so um, the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles, that happened September, October. The Feast of Dedication or Hanukkah, that took place usually in December, but sometimes in late November it would begin. And so what does that mean? That means that we're about four or five months from the crucifixion of the Christ. So right now, if you're looking at John chapter nine, verse one, just say amen so I know you're there. Okay, so here we go. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, as Jesus and his disciples were walking along, right, they they came across a man with congenital blindness. Now, because this guy couldn't work, he was a beggar, And because he was smart, he chose the city of Jerusalem, a huge urban area. Why? Because the more people, the more chance that he would get money or alms. In that day, many Jews, you got to understand the mindset here in order to understand the beginning part of this chapter. So if you're listening right now, say amen here. So the mindset of the first century Jew was this. If you're suffering, there must be a personal sin that you committed. In other words, if you have some kind of sickness or physical disability, obviously it's because you committed some sin and God is inflicting this judgment upon you for your sin. Now, the disciples were just products of their culture. Many Jews, if not most Jews in the first century AD, they had that mindset. The disciples are products of their culture, and so that's why they asked Jesus, teacher, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind. Please look at Jesus' answer in verse three. Jesus answered, it is not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Well, praise the Lord. Now, I gotta give you the whole counsel of God here, and so I want everybody to say the word sometimes. 
Sometimes in scripture we see that willful sin can lead to God's judgment in a person's life where that person either becomes ill or dies. It's in the Bible. All right, I'll give you one example. The Corinthians were judged. Some with sickness, others with death. Why? Because they were coming to the Lord's Supper, communion. Um, by the way, in the first century, when they had communion, what did they have? They called them loved feasts or agape feasts. So they would get together for like a big potluck. And then at the end of the potluck, the elder or pastor would stand up and there would be communion after the potluck. But here's the problem. In Corinth, um, in that church, people were coming to the Lord's Supper in either a selfish way, they're not sharing their food, they're hoarding their food while other people don't have anything to eat and are hungry, or they're coming to the Lord's Supper in an inebriated way. They're actually getting drunk. And they're receiving communion. And so that's why Paul wrote this. He said, let a person examine himself then. And so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks, what's the word? Judgment on himself. In the same passage, Paul says, that's why some of you um, are sick. And that's why some of you have died. Okay, on that note. We have communion this Thursday. Some of you are thinking right now, you just talked about people dying after taking communion. You're inviting me to communion. Well, yeah, I am. Uh, but we're gonna be very respectful <laughs> of, of the Lord, which we should always honor the Lord. But here's what you need to know if you're new to Calvary is that the first Thursday of every month, we have um, two ordinances that we follow. Right? How many of you guys know the Lord left us two ordinances? He left us communion and he left us baptism. Now, neither of those will save you uh, but they are commandments for Christians. And uh, because we have three services and probably gonna add a fourth service at some point, we just don't really have time on the weekends and so that's why we have first Thursday gathering. And so this Thursday is gonna be great, 6.30 right in this room. Pastor Will's gonna share the word of God. Pastor Andrew's gonna lead us in communion. There's gonna be people who get baptized and, and that's always a party atmosphere here at Calvary. So I wanna encourage you guys to mark your calendar. I know you're tired after work, but see if you can come 6.30 right here and we do have childcare, I believe, up to kindergarten. Could be wrong on that, but we do have childcare for the little ones um, this Thursday night. I also wanna say, if you haven't been baptized, help me out church family, since you received Christ as your Savior and Lord, you need to follow the Lord's command. There is no infant baptism in the Bible. It's not there. And so baptism is the first step of obedience after you get saved. And so my encouragement is if you're not, haven't been baptized since you received Christ as your Savior and Lord, to sign up. Today's the last day, by the way, for this month. Okay, and so if you want to get baptized this Thursday, sign up today on, on our online. Just go to calvarypsl.com, click on next steps, click on baptism, and follow, um, follow whatever it tells you to do there. Or um, you can just come up and talk to an elder right after the service today and say, I want to get baptized um, this Thursday night. All right, so who sinned? This man or his parents? Jesus says, neither this man or his parents 
sinned in this situation. But sometimes, everybody say sometimes, <laughs> willful sin can lead to divine judgment, causing someone to suffer in some way. But I really want you to hear this right here and right now so I'm not misunderstood. So if you're listening, say amen here. All right, to declare that all illness or all disabilities are always the result of personal sin, ladies and gentlemen, that's flat out wrong. And if you do that, you're acting like Job's so-called friends. You remember them? And so Job has all this horrific suffering that he encounters and his so-called friends are like, I'm paraphrasing, you must have sinned for this suffering to come upon you, Job. Were his friends right or wrong? Well, no, they were wrong, okay? And so they didn't know his heart. They didn't know what was going on. And so they judged Job. And so what you gotta understand is that the disciples here were acting like Job's friends. Who sinned, Lord? I mean, this guy's been blind since, he's been, since he was born. It had to be somebody. Was it his parents? Was it him? And Jesus corrects them, says they're wrong about the cause of the man's blindness. It's not due to his sin or his parents' sin. God allowed it. Why? So that his amazing works might be displayed in this guy. And by the way, let me just, just say this, that does anybody here think that right now this guy who's in heaven, whose life was changed both physically and spiritually by the Lord Jesus Christ, do you think he has any regret that he had blindness since birth, but he was used so that God's mighty works might be displayed in him? Do you think he has any regrets right now in heaven? Not at all. In fact, right now, um, I think he's probably thinking, man, it's been 2,000 years and they're still talking about my story. It's all about God's glory. Look at verse four. Jesus says to his disciples, we must work the works of him, that's the Father, who sent me, that's important for later, who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. All right, so what in the world does he mean by we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day? Well, you interpret the Bible with a Bible. You interpret verse four with verse five. As long as I am in the world. That's what he means by day. I am the light of the world. And so the word day referred to Jesus' time on earth. And the phrase, the night is coming, refers to when he would be taken away from his disciples after Judas betrays him, after he's arrested, after he suffers by the hands of the Romans, and after he uh, dies on a cross. And so time was limited for Jesus. He's only got four or five months left in his earthly ministry, and so he has got to finish the work that the Father gave him. Now, I want you to Go back in time 2,000 years ago, and I want you to put yourself there, right? There we are, right? We're all there. We're kind of in the, in the streets of Jerusalem. It's huge. There's hustle and bustle, and there's people everywhere. And there's Jesus, and there's the disciples, and there's this blind beggar, right, asking people for alms. Now, what is the Lord going to do? Is the Lord going to ignore this guy, or is he going to pay attention to this guy? Is the Lord going to keep walking, or is he going to reach out? What do you guys think Jesus is gonna do? He's gonna reach out. And so look at verse six now. Having said these things, Jesus spit on the ground. Okay, that's unusual. And he made mud with the saliva. 
That's more unusual. And then he anointed the man's eyes with what? Mud. All right, so can you imagine what this guy is thinking right now? He's not deaf, he's blind. Okay, he can't see, but he can hear, and he probably can hear really well because he can't see. And so what does he hear? He hears the sound of spitting. Yes, I did think about making this story come alive. (laughs) But I'll just restrain myself. What does he hear? He hears, I could have made it a lot worse than that, okay. (laughs) And then what does he hear? He hears the sound of mixing. And then what does he feel? He feels mud being put on his eyes. So here's Jesus, right? And that's kind of gross in itself, but he's doing this with his saliva, and he takes this, and he puts it on the guy's eyes, and I don't know, maybe he really puts it in hard. (laughs) This guy's like, what is going on here? Now, I think it's important to say that this isn't the only place where Jesus used his saliva when performing a miracle. If you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, this is not the only time that he spits when he does a miracle. So the question is, why? Well, if you go to a great website, you guys ever heard me recommend this website before? (laughs) Gotquestions.org, why did Jesus spit for some of his miracles? Okay, number one, the beliefs of the contemporary culture. And so believe it or not, in that day, people were familiar with saliva as a possible curative for ailments. Aren't you glad we don't live in the first century AD? And so when this man heard the sound of Jesus spitting, he thought, maybe he thought, oh, he wants to heal me. All right, that's a plausible answer. Number two, why did Jesus spit for some of his miracles? This is my favorite, to parallel God's creation of man. And so just as God created Adam from the dirt of the ground, so Jesus used the dirt of the ground mixed with his saliva in order to create life in this guy's eyes so that later when people heard his testimony, they would say, wow, only God can cause dead things to come to life. This guy had a testimony. Number three, um, why did Jesus spit for some of his miracles? To vary his methods. The idea here is Jesus didn't want people to focus on any one method that he used when he healed. So what did he do? He switched the methods up. None of his two, um, none of his miracles were exactly alike. None of his healings, the way he healed methods, were exactly alike. Why? So that we would focus on the Messiah instead of the method. So, I love this quote from Got Questions. Healing is not the product of any talisman or amulet or spell or process. Healing comes from the power of God. And that's what we gotta focus on. And so Christ would say, hey, you need a miracle? Keep your eyes on me. I'll come back to that in a moment. But I had to laugh this week, I thought, you know, why is, why is Jesus always spitting? And lo and behold, I mean, they've already answered over 700,000 questions. Got Questions had an article about Jesus spit. 
And so my encouragement to you is if you're going through your devotions and you hit a tough spot, give it a try, gotquestions.org, and see if the answer um, is at your fingertips. All right, please look at verse seven now. So Jesus says to him after he anoints the man's eyes with mud, hey, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means, what's that word there? Shout it out, please. Sent. You remember that word? Jesus said back in verse uh, four, we must work the works of him who sent me. And so now John is talking about the pool of Siloam, which means sent. And so the guy, the blind guy, went and washed, and lo and behold, he came back seeing. Now, do you guys remember the pool of Siloam back in chapter seven? There's the actual remains of the pool in case you weren't here about a month ago when I taught on this. And so that is the remains of the pool of Siloam from the Bible. It was uncovered by archeologists just in 2004. Ladies and gentlemen, they're excavating Israel. And when they excavate Israel, guess what? They're finding a lot of stuff that matches the Bible. And so what happens is that, what happened in 2004 is that they were, workers were trying to fix a sewage pipe and boom, what is that? They called the archeologist and lo and behold, it's the pool of Siloam. And lo and behold, this isn't a book of myths, it's a book that is historically accurate. Did you guys hear that? Don't let anybody ever tell you that this is filled with errors or filled with myth or legend. Nothing could be further from the truth. Um, I didn't do this in the other two services, but I'll tell you guys, but later I need to tell all three services, and that is if you want to learn more about how we got our Bible and how reliable and authentic and genuine this is, uh, watch the video, The God Who Speaks. The God Who Speaks, it's on Prime Video. Really encourage you uh, to check that out. But this is what it may have looked like in Bible times. All right, so the Pool of Siloam was fed by the Gihon Spring. And so this is what happened. As water flowed from or, or was sent from the Gihon Spring through Hezekiah's tunnel and to the Pool of Siloam, then people were able to go to that spring. And so Gihon Spring, through Hezekiah's tunnel, to the pool of Siloam. And I want you now to get back in this guy's sandals for a moment. I want you to imagine there's mud in his eyes, okay? What does that mean? That means his eyes are probably irritated. Jesus says, go wash in the pool of Siloam. And so someone's gotta take him. And finally he gets there and his eyes are hurting, right, because of the mud. And so he begins to splash the water into his eyes. And don't you know, as he splashes the water into his eyes, guess what happens? The feeling of irritation and pain is going away. Oh man, that feels so good. But I gotta tell you this also that nothing could match the feeling of after he splashes waters in his eyes, he's like, I can see the water. Maybe he saw a reflection of himself right there. Man, I can see, I can see people's faces. I can see children playing in the street. Man, I can see the sun shining. Don't look directly into the sun. I can see clouds passing. I see an olive tree and a fig tree. I see flowers and a vineyard. And 
whoa, what is that towering above the trees? That must be the temple. Praise the Lord. Don't you guys know this guy's excited right now? He's been blind since birth. Try to, just try to put yourself in his shoes. If you were blind since birth and you had never seen anything and all of a sudden you can see, what do you think this guy's doing? He's shouting. What do you think this guy's doing? He's running, he's leaping, he's dancing, he's so happy. Now, John noted in verse seven that the word Siloam means sent. Okay, what's the significance of that? Well, the significance is that Jesus was sent by the Father to give light and life. So just as the water went or was sent from the the Gihon Spring to the Pool of Siloam, so the Word was sent from the Father in heaven to the earth. All right, so why did the Word, Jesus Christ, come to the earth? Here's why. Because he wants to give us light. He wants to give us life. He wants to change our lives. And so he changed this guy's life. He gives him physical sight here in verse seven. Later on, we're gonna find out he's gonna give this guy spiritual light, spiritual life in verse 38. Before we continue on, I gotta ask a very important question um, and clarify this matter up, um, at least in this local church, okay? So I want you to answer out loud and I want you, um, if you really believe this, to answer like you mean it. Okay, here's the question. You guys ready for this? Does God still do miracles today, yes or no? Yes. Listen, 1,000% yes. God is still in the miracle business today. You say, well, miracle never happened in my life. Well, so you're gonna all of a sudden make a theology and a doctrine that it means that God's not doing miracles today because you've never experienced a miracle? Of course he's still doing miracles today. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he's still changing lives. Now, for those of you who are skeptics, Lee Strobel, have you ever heard of him? I love this guy, I trust this guy. He wrote The Case for Christ. I think that was his first book. By the way, there's a movie on The Case for Christ. If you've never seen the movie on Prime Video, I encourage you to watch it. It's not a B-rated Christian movie, it's a really good movie. The Case for Christ, the case for a creator, a case for faith, a case for heaven, a case for miracles. What did Lee Strobel do? Uh, Lee Strobel used his legal training and his training in journalism and he investigated the question, do miracles still occur today? And the answer is a resounding yes. Yes. And so if you're praying for a miracle for your life or another person's life, here's what I want you to do. I want you to remember how God moved in the past. Think about that, dwell on that, pray about that, and then let that bolster your faith that God is still moving in the present. Ladies and gentlemen, let me tell you something. This church, is, it's, it's not come and sit in a row and hear a lecture for your mind that's intellectually stimulating and then you go home. That is not what this is about at all. Jesus is here by his Holy Spirit. He wants to change lives. He wants to change people. And he still does miracles today. And so I'm not teaching name it and claim it, right? I'm not teaching miracles on demand here. 
at all. What I am saying is that God still does supernatural things today because he wants to get people's attention, either lost people, when they see a miracle, it's like, wow, or backslidden Christians, they see a miracle and it's like, I I better get serious about my faith. Look at verse eight. So glad it's raining, we can just go on and on. (laughs) The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? And some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. (laughs) And he kept saying, I'm the man. All right, and so by this time, Jesus and the disciples had left, but a crowd had gathered. Why? Because this guy had never been able to see, now he can see, and so again, he's jumping and he's shouting, right? Crowd gathers around. And some of them are like, that's really him. That's the blind beggar. How can he see now? What's going on? And other people are like, no, are you kidding? That can't happen. Congenital blindness being healed? There's no way. That's got to be his twin brother. That's got to be somebody that looks like him. No. And he's the whole time like, it's me, it's me. Okay, you're there? All right, look at verse 10. So they said to him, the crowd, then how were your eyes open?" He answered, the man called, shout out his name, Jesus. Jesus. Everybody look at me real quick. There's power in that name. Here's what I want you to do. Say that name this week at work. Say that name at this week with your neighbor or the loved one or a friend. And, and, And for some people, watch the hair on the back of their necks go, wing. Right? There's power in that name. And ladies and gentlemen, demons have to flee at the name of Jesus. Jesus is real. He's not a theory in a book. He's not pie in the sky by and by. He's alive. He's present. He wants to change lives. And there's power in his name. And we need to speak his name without ever being embarrassed, without ever being ashamed. We need to speak the name of Jesus. Jesus is what people need. And so, he said, a man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, well, where is he? And he said, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know where he is. And so, what do you do when a divine miracle takes place? Well, what you do is you go get the religious experts' opinions about it. And that's what this crowd did. They're like, hey, let's take them to the Pharisees and see what the Pharisees have to say. And as we're reading this, we're like, do you have to? I mean, come on. Oh, my goodness. Well, we have to. So look at verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a, what kind of day? Uh-oh, Jesus is in trouble. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Super clear testimony. Now here's what you need to know. The Pharisees knew the Bible. These were the experts in religion. They knew 
um, Torah. They knew the prophets. They knew the historical books. So these guys knew two things. Number one, they knew that only God can open the eyes of the blind. And they knew, number two, that when the eyes of the blind are opened, it's a sign, a sign that the Messiah has come. They knew verses like this right here, Psalm 146, verse eight. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. And they knew this passage right here in Isaiah 29, 18. In that day, the day of the Messiah, the deaf shall hear the words of a book and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. They knew this verse in Isaiah 35. Then, when, when Messiah comes, the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped and shall, uh, then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. The scriptures were absolutely clear. When blind eyes are opened, you know something. You know Messiah has come. And you would think that these Pharisees would have been happy for this guy. I mean, he's been blind since birth and now he can see. Can't they at least say, praise the Lord? But they can't say, praise the Lord. Why? Because they're self-righteous. They're arrogant. Their hearts are hard. They're critical. They like thinking themselves better than other people. And they hate Jesus. You would think they would be happy for the guy, but they're not happy. You would think that they would prepare their hearts. Where's Jesus? Man, we're ready right now to place our faith in him as the Messiah. But that is not, sadly, what happened. What happened, verse 16? Some of the Pharisees said, referring to Jesus, this man is not from God. For he does not keep the Sabbath. Everybody, look at me real quick. You guys know what the Sabbath is, right? Not Sunday, Saturday. Sundown on Friday, sundown on Saturday, the seventh day of the week, right? The creation account, it's when God rested. Fourth commandment, don't work on the seventh day, on the Sabbath. Cease is what the word Sabbath means. Cease from working, okay? So this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, and I love this because Jesus is actually getting through to some of these guys, some of these Pharisees. By the way, some of them are gonna get saved in the book of Acts. Others said, well, how can a man who's a sinner do such signs. I wonder if Nicodemus may have led that group. And there was a division, praise the Lord, there was a division among the Pharisees. So they said again to the blind man, well, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And he said, this is just where this guy is right now, he's not saved yet, he said, he's a prophet. And so the Pharisees considered Jesus a sinner. Why? Because in their eyes, he violated the Sabbath. But here's my question. Did the Lord really break the Sabbath? And the answer is no way. The Lord didn't violate the Sabbath. Here's what he did. He violated the religious leaders' rules about how to keep the Sabbath. Do you see the difference there? 
And so real quick, here's what you gotta understand so you understand what's going on in the Bible. The Jews of that day had the written word and they also, the written law, and they also had the oral law. What's the written law? The written law is the word of God. Specifically, in this case, right, we know the whole Old Testament is breathed out by God in the original manuscripts, but specifically in this case, it's the law of Moses. It's the word that Moses got from God on Mount Sinai, which doesn't just include the Ten Commandments, it includes a lot more. You can go back and read Torah later. All right, so they had the written word, but, but, but here's the thing, they, also, they not just had the written law, they also had, the Jews had the oral law. Okay, so what was the oral law? The oral law were traditions and man-made rules. We're talking about hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of traditions and man-made rules passed down orally from generation to generation to generation. And here's the big problem. And by the way, the oral law was all about, it affected all aspects, so many aspects of Jewish life, and a lot of it had to do with how you act on the Sabbath day. How do you keep the Sabbath day? Here's the problem if you're listening, say amen. The Jews elevated the oral law and made it have equal authority with the written law. And that ticked off Jesus. That made him mad. When it comes to the written law, Jesus was all over it. How many of you guys know Jesus kept the law of Moses perfectly? He never sinned one time. He went to the cross as a lamb without blemish and without spot. Why? Because we can't live perfect lives. So he was the perfect sacrifice who paid for our sins in full on the cross. We couldn't. He did. He rose again. That means it took. That means we need Jesus. And so... Sometimes the Jews would elevate their oral law above the written law. That really made Jesus mad. Read Matthew 23 later today. And so what's going on here? It's called legalism. Question, could Jesus, it's, it's, he, did the, he did the miracle on Saturday. Could Jesus, let me back up. One of, the, one of their man-made rules was that you can't heal on the Sabbath day unless someone's life is is actually threatened. Okay, that's a man-made rule. No healing on the Sabbath unless it's life-threatening. This situation was not life-threatening. Question to you guys. Could Jesus, it's, it's Saturday when he heals this guy. Could Jesus have waited till Sunday? Yes or no? Yeah, he could have. But here's what he did. He purposely did it on the Sabbath. Why? Because he wanted to challenge the legalism of the day. Ladies and gentlemen, I know that no good evangelical would ever put their man-made rules and say publicly, this is on the same level as God's written word. But you know a lot of churches act like that? Do you know a lot of churches have all these man-made rules and you would think that it's on the same level as God's written word? Can, can we do something here at Calvary? How many of you guys believe where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom? Can we do something here at Calvary? Okay, there's enough rules in the Bible. And by the way, I don't have time to get into hermeneutics and what part of the law, you know, how we're not under the law, we're under grace, we're under the law of Christ. I don't have time to get into all of that. Uh, gotquestions.org, okay? But can we do this? Can we never elevate man-made rules? If somebody tries to put a legalistic trip on you, 
If someone tries to get you under their man-made religious rule, ask them chapter and verse, please, because there's enough rules in the Bible for us to follow. We don't need more man-made rules. Well, not more, but we don't need man-made rules heaped up on us because here's what's happening. Those poor people in the first century, it's like this big burden around their neck and they're so weary. And Jesus is like, why are you doing this? And so that's why he purposely did a lot of miracles on the Sabbath day. Is this making sense to you guys? All right, so in, in order to investigate everything further, they now call the parents in. And so now, verse 18, the Jews did not believe that, they, that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight. And they asked him, these guys, by the way, are probably trembling right now, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? And his parents answered, because they're intimidated. Why? Because abuse of religious power is written all over this passage. Well, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we don't know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. In other words, he's at least 13. He'll speak for himself. Verse 22, commentary from John. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, Jesus to be Messiah, he was to be put out of the synagogue. And ladies and gentlemen, that was a big deal back then. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. And so they're scared to death of getting kicked out of the synagogue. And so they affirmed the two facts. This is our son. Yes, he was born blind. But when they said, well, how in the world can he now see who, who did this? They're like, you know, ask him. They don't want to get in trouble with the Pharisees. Verse 24 so for the second time, they called in the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. It's like, guys, you already made up your mind. Why are you doing this? Verse 25, he answered, whether he's a sinner, I don't know. And here's my favorite phrase. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. I love it, this guy's got a testimony. They said to him, well, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already, and you wouldn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? <laughs> I like this guy, he's a fiery dude. He's got nothing to lose. He used to be a blind beggar. I mean, he doesn't care what these people think about him. Can I encourage you guys? Stop worrying about what people think about you. Don't worry about it. It doesn't matter. We live before the audience of one, Jesus Christ. Verse 28, and they reviled him saying, you're his disciple, but we're disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but for this man, we don't know where he comes from. And the man says to them, well, why, this is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. Like, you guys are the religious experts and you don't know where he comes from? Verse 31, now he's lecturing the Pharisees. 
We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he would do nothing. And what do you do when you lose a debate? If you're in the flesh, you resort to name calling. Can I encourage you guys, stop name calling on social media, please? You're giving God a bad name. That was for free. All right. (laughs) Verse 34, they answered him, well, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Talk about arrogance. They're looking down their nose. You've been steeped in sin since birth. I mean, it's just so sick, the abuse of power here. You've been steeped in sin since birth. Who do you think you are teaching us? And they excommunicated this guy out of their presence, no doubt, out of the synagogue. And probably that's the second best thing that ever happened to him. What's the best thing up to this point that's happened to him? Jesus gave him sight. What's the second best thing? He doesn't have to go to church with these guys anymore. And you know what I mean, synagogue. And we trust that on the day of Pentecost and the birthday of the church, he joined Pastor James and was part of the church of Jerusalem, which by the way is is really close to where we are now in the Bible. And so look at verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And so Jesus is thinking, all right, the Pharisees rejected him. I don't. I don't. Aren't you guys so glad that Jesus is so amazing? I mean, come on, right? What did Pastor Andrew say earlier? Pastor Andrew said earlier, he's always coming after us. And so Jesus heard that they had cast him out and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And by the way, the phrase Son of Man in the Old Testament, synonymous with Messiah. Do you believe in the Messiah? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you've seen him. And it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. Lord, I believe. Trust in you. And he worshiped him. And so now something even greater than getting physical sight just happened. This guy received spiritual sight. This guy puts his trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and he is spiritually changed forever. And by the way, did you notice the fruit of genuine faith? It's worship. What does that mean in the Greek? Well, in the New Testament Greek, it means to kneel, to prostrate, to do homage, all right? So can, can you guys see it? Go back to the Bible. Think about what's going on. He looks at him and he says, Lord, I believe, I trust in you. And he either gets down on his knees or he lays down on his face before Jesus. Now, don't you guys understand that if Jesus was not God in the flesh, as a good Jew, he would not have accepted this worship. As a good Jew, he would say, what, what are you, wait, whoa. Haven't you ever read the first commandment? You know the big 10, Moses coming down Mount Sinai? Number one, don't have any of the gods before me. Worship God alone. Man, don't do that. Get up. 
But Jesus didn't say that. He accepted. Why? Are you listening to me? Say amen. Here's why he accepted worship. Because Jesus was and is God in the flesh. He accepted it. I was watching a long time ago a, a conversation between John MacArthur and Ben Shapiro. And Ben Shapiro, as John MacArthur sharing the gospel with him, said, I just think Jesus is like a prophet like Jeremiah. Ladies and gentlemen, listen to my reasoning here. Jeremiah from the Old Testament, the prophet Jeremiah, if anybody ever got on their face before Jeremiah and started worshiping him, he'd kick him in the ribs. He wouldn't accept that worship. Jesus accepted the worship. What does that mean? Jesus is God. That's the Jesus of the Bible. And man, if you have not believed that yet, today is the day that you accept the true Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the Lord. And so verse 39, Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. So when Jesus said that those who don't see may see, he's referring to those who knew they were spiritually blind and they were willing to turn to him in faith so they could see. Oh, I really hope that you're listening right now because the Bible says this, there is none righteous, no, not one. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible says, the wages of sin is what? Death. And so all of us were born with a sin nature. All of us choose to sin, but if anybody turns to the light of the world, Jesus Christ, believing that he paid for their sins on the cross, paid in full, was buried and rose again the third day. If anybody, anywhere, will turn to Christ in repentance and faith, receiving him as the Savior and Lord of their lives, here's what Jesus will do. He'll give them spiritual life, spiritual light, spiritual sight, and that's the greatest miracle of all. And when Jesus said, and those who see may become blind, what he's saying is those who think you see, those who think you have spiritual sight, but did not. Why? Because they're trusting in their ancestry. We're descendants of Abraham. They're trusting in their self-righteousness. Look how good we are. And what does Jesus say? Jesus said, you're blind. Verse 40 some of you thinking, he's gonna make it through a whole chapter today. <laughs> yeah, isn't that amazing? I think that happens like once every millennium. All right. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you'd have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. What, is, what does that mean? Well, when Jesus said, if you were blind, you would have no guilt, here's what he was inferring, that if the Pharisees would just accept the fact that they're lost sinners, if the Pharisees would just accept the fact that they're spiritually blind, and that Jesus is the Messiah, and that they need him, 
If they would just turn to Christ, what would he do? He'd forgive their sins and give them spiritual sight and they'd have no guilt at all. How many of you guys know Jesus wants to save these guys too? He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so what did Jesus mean when he said, but now that you say we see, your guilt remains? He's inferring that since they claim to see spiritually, since they claim to be accepted by God, why? We're descendants of Abraham. We're, you know, keeping the law. It's, they're, they're relying on their self-righteousness to justify them. He says, you're going to remain in your sin. You're going to remain in guilt. And ladies and gentlemen, if they die in that spiritual condition, they wake up in hell. Can I just let you guys know that Jesus preached more on hell than he did on heaven, that, that hell is a real place. And you need, no, nothing's more important than to make sure that you are ready for that time when your number's up. His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. Turn to him in repentance and faith today. And so my favorite verse is this. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. What do you call that? You call that amazing grace. And so in closing, I'm gonna tell you a story, and I want you to stay with me all the way to the end. How many of you guys ever heard of John Newton before? A few of you. Well, John Newton knew a lot about God's grace. He was born in July 24th, 1725, and he died December 21st, 1807. And I gotta tell you, what an eventful 82 years this guy lived on the earth. When he was just seven years old, his godly mother passed away from tuberculosis. And so she raised him up for seven years in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. She shared uh, the God of the Bible. She shared Jesus Christ uh, stories of the Lord with little John Newton, but she'd passed away, and so his, her influence ended. His dad was a merchant Navy captain, and when John was just 11 years old, he went out to sea with his dad. During his teenage years, the guy becomes this big, big rebel. He's rejecting all authority, wants to go his own way and do his own thing, and he shuns the God that his mother had told him about. Later in life, he becomes a midshipman, a midshipman in the Royal Navy, and because he hated military life, he went AWOL at the age of 19. Now, in that time, that's a big mistake, because later on, they caught him, and they assembled everybody, and they publicly flogged, they publicly whipped him for, for leaving the military, leaving the Royal Navy. He is so depressed, he wants to commit suicide, and so his superiors, because his dad's a big shot, his superiors are like, what are we gonna do with this mixed up, insubordinate, rebellious kid? And so at Newton's request, they agreed to allow him, get this, to serve on a slave ship, a ship that carried cargo to Africa and then traded that cargo for African slaves. And when he was 22 years old, during one of these shipments, his, um, him and his crewmates, they encounter this fierce storm. And during this fierce storm, one of his buddies is literally washed off the boat and he drowns at sea. And Newton's thinking, I'm gonna die. And guess what pops up in his mind? His mom. 
He thinks about the woman who had given him such good advice when he was just a little boy, advice that he had long since spurned, long since turned away from. And on the boat, he finally breaks down, he prays, quote, God, if you get me safely to shore, I'll serve you forever. And God answered his prayer. He survived the storm. John Newton encountered God's grace that day. But I read a really interesting article from Christianity Today, and Newton, looking back at that scary day when he said the prayer to God, this is what Newton said, and I quote, I can't consider myself to have been a believer in the full sense of the word. And so what happens is he becomes the captain of not one, but two slave ships, And though he tries to treat the slaves with kindness, he begins to feel this guilt welling up in his soul. After his time at sea, John Newton grows to despise the slave trade. And back home in England, he's influenced by guys like, anybody ever heard of John Wesley? George Whitfield. And so he begins to be influenced by these evangelicals who are teaching the gospel and preaching the word of God. And at some point, he becomes a believer in the full sense of the word. Then John Newton becomes a minister, and his influence is now growing in England as he gets older and older. And he meets and befriends a young politician by the name of William Wilberforce. And William Wilberforce is in Parliament. And John Newton so despises the slave trade, he tells William Wilberforce, man, you got to use your influence in Parliament and you need to fight for the abolition of the slave trade in the British Empire. And guess what? That's exactly what Wilberforce did. First, he met the Lord. And Christ changed his life. And now he's a politician in parliament. And even though there's this fierce resistance, year after year after year, William Wilberforce continues to fight for the abolition of the slave trade. And the good news is that on March 25th, 1807, the slave trade became illegal in the British Empire. Yeah, we should be clapping right now. Yeah, we should be cheering right now. Why? Because ladies and gentlemen, listen to me. You say, should a Christian get involved in politics? Yeah, we're called to be salt and light. We're called to take a stand. We're called to let our light shine like William Wilberforce. He was a born again evangelical Christian. He knew that the slave trade was wrong and year after year after year, he fought and fought and fought and finally, after so many years, it becomes illegal and we say praise the Lord. But who was his number one influencer? John Newton. And so the guy who was the captain of slave ships became a pastor and the primary influencer of one of the greatest politicians in history. But you need to know that John Newton was not just a pastor and not just an influencer of politicians. He was also a hymn writer. He wrote 280 hymns. And one of those hymns became the most popular song in Christian history. Does anybody want to take a guess at the name of that hymn? Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. You guys want to sing it real quick? Just one verse? Okay, I'm not Pastor Reagan. 
so I'll just start it, but you guys sing it loud. Ready? Amazing grace. Praise the Lord, choir. That was good. That was good. Have you personally experienced God's grace? You never will until you admit that you're blind. You admit you're a sinner. You admit the wages of sin is death. You believe Jesus paid for your sins on the cross. He rose again, and you stop. And listen, as you turn to Christ, what are you turning your back on? Sin. And you receive him as the Savior and Lord of your life. 